here. Uh, he gave it away. Revelation 2. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. Would you open them up to Revelation chapter 2? Uh, this won't come as much of a surprise to, I think, many of you, but I'm a fan of naval history. Shocking, right? Um, I, I have been for about as long as I can remember. Um, I, I really enjoy reading and, and watching movies and, and history, uh, documentaries about naval history. And this last year, Hollywood gave us yet another uh, great movie um, on one of the most important battles in World War II, uh, the Battle of Midway. You guys remember seeing that come out? Maybe you've seen it. I liked like the, the original Midway movie better. That's a side note. That one's for free. Um, but the events of that battle actually began about 78 years ago this week. You see, in early January of 1942, about a month after the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, the United States Navy's fleet radio unit Pacific, which was the Navy's signals and intelligence and cryptographic in, or organization in Hawaii, uh, was hard at work trying to break the Japanese code uh, for their radio encryptions. Slowly, the analysts, as they studied that code and listened to it and worked through it, they were able to partially break the Japanese code. In fact, they had made enough progress that the U.S. had been uh, able to decode messages stating that there would soon be an operation at objective Alpha Foxtrot. Now, they didn't know what Alpha Foxtrot was at first, but they had a suspicion, and a team of, of Navy intelligence personnel led by Commander Joseph Rochefort was able to confirm that it was midway atoll by way of a cunning ruse. What they did is they had undersea communication cables that ran from Hawaii out to Midway Atoll. And so what they did is they sent via that secure com communication, said, hey, we need you to broadcast in the clear that your water treatment facility is broken. A couple days after they sent out that broadcast, um, actually it was within 24 hours, the Japanese sent a message saying that Alpha Foxtrot was short on water. And with that interception, the U.S. Navy knew that they had successfully deciphered the Japanese encryption. They were reading the Japanese mail. The result was that when the Japanese fleet attempted to execute their surprise attack in early June of 1942 at Midway with a fleet of four aircraft carriers, two battleships, two heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, 12 destroyers, and over 250 aircraft, instead of achieving surprise, they were met by the U.S. force of three aircraft carriers, the Hornet, the Yorktown, and the Enterprise, Seven heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, 15 destroyers, and more than 350 land-based and carrier-based aircraft. The U.S. Navy sank all four Japanese aircraft carriers. They sank one of their heavy cruisers and destroyed 248 Japanese aircraft while only losing one carrier, the Yorktown, and one destroyer, the Hammond, and 150 aircraft. The result has been called the most stunning and decisive blow in the history of naval warfare by one historian, all because the Navy was able to read the Japanese messages, all because they were able to read the Japanese mail. Um, there can be a lot of advantages to reading the mail. I got a text message this morning, DJ, saying that, that it's a felony, which it is. If you read someone else's mail, it is a felony. And he said, hey, I'm looking forward to committing a felony in church. Um, but, but this isn't going to be a felony for us. There's a lot of advantages to reading someone else's mail. And that is true for us today. We're going to begin a new series today, which we're calling Reading Someone Else's Mail. And in this series, we're going to spend the next seven weeks reading through the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor that we find at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Each of these seven letters is a letter from Jesus to a church. Each of them is meant to encourage and correct the churches to help them be all that Christ intended them to be. 
So as I said, if you've got your Bible, hopefully by now you're there at Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be reading the Ephesians mail together. So we'll start at verse 1. The Bible says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we open up your word today, as we read this this letter to the church in Ephesus, I ask that you would speak to us as well. Help us to understand this message clearly, to take from it the things you want us to take, that we would walk out of here ready to be your church in 2020, ready to serve you, ready to do your mission in Alberta and Baldwin County and beyond. God, we love you, we praise you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we begin reading the Ephesian church's mail here today, this this short letter begins in in verse 1 with an addressee followed by a description of the letter's author. It it begins in verse 1 saying, To the angel in the church in Ephesus. And I think it's helpful for us to understand who is this angel. Uh, now, because this is Revelation, we talked a little bit about this last week and some of the things that we find in this, in this book that is both uh, apocalypse and letter and prophecy, there's a lot of symbology. So, so there's also a lot of questions and a lot of people wondering, hey, what do each of these things men mean? And, and there's some differing opinions here. Um, some argue that this is a heavenly guardian of some, of some variety who is assigned the mission of protecting each of these churches. Uh, some believe that the term is a way of personifying the church and its, its spirit as a whole. So what it's doing is it's taking the collective church and just personifying it in a single person that, that represents the church. Some believe it's the elder or the, the pastor of those churches. That's kind of where I fall on this. That's what I think this is saying. And I believe that because the word that's used here that's translated angels, angelos, um, can also mean messenger. Over the course of these seven letters, that, that seems to me the most, most logical and, and honestly the easiest explanation. These letters are addressed to the messengers, the elders of each respective church who are going to serve as relays to present these messages to their church as a whole. So we read, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The letter uh, that follows is coming from Jesus. Uh, He is Christ exalted on high in heaven, reigning in splendor. And if you were to flip back in your Bible to chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, you would see John describing his vision of heaven. And as he describes what he saw, he describes Jesus exalted and majestic, standing among the seven golden lampstands. And in that same passage in verse 20, you can read that the seven golden lampstands represent these seven churches and that the seven stars represent the seven angels of these churches. 
So what we're seeing here is that Jesus is writing this letter to the pastor of each of these churches. And here in this letter, he's writing this letter to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. That's how this begins in verse one. Um, But before we move into the letter itself, again, remember this this is painting a picture for us. This is giving us some imagery. And what's really interesting here is kind of the word picture that John uses to describe Jesus. Now, in each of these letters, as we begin them, he's going to paint to to kind of go back to the initial picture that he had of Jesus. And he's going to take one or two little aspects of what he described, and he's going to repeat them in, in the letter. We'll see this throughout each week. This week, he talks about the one, Jesus being the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So let me ask you, as we, as we see that, understanding the imagery a little bit more now, what is the picture that we have here? Jesus is holding the seven stars in his right hand. The angels, these pastors, pastors of the churches, they're in his grasp. He's holding them up. He's supporting them. He's encouraging them. And Jesus is walking among the seven golden lampstands. He's in the midst of these churches. He's there with them, seeing what they're experiencing, understanding all that they're going through. Remember, these churches are going through persecution. And what John is saying is, this, hey, Jesus is right there with you. Now, now, maybe that's just me, but that encourages me. Like, no kidding. The, Jesus is in the midst. He's holding these guys up, and he's, he's with them as they go through this. So then we move into the letter, and the letter begins quite positive, starting at verse 2 there. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That's a positive kind of encouragement And as we read these two verses of praise here, I think we ought to recognize the importance of celebrating the wins. Celebrating the wins, because that's what we're seeing here. The church in Ephesus had its strengths, and Jesus is celebrating them. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. And and they're winning in their deeds. They're winning in their works. Now, now today, we don't know what those specific deeds were. It's, It's not in the text. We can only kind of guess the word here, what we do know, though, is that that word there, that, that the word toil is kopos. It, it refers to strenuous labor, the, the kind that induces weariness. This last summer, after we moved into our house, there was a lot of yard work that needed to be done, trees that I felt like just couldn't wait. They needed to be pruned. The branches had to be dragged. Uh, so I decided to do that in the middle of August. I was a hot, sweaty mess. Um, yeah, that's what this is here. That's kind of the, the kind of toil we're talking about. So, so what we see here is that this church was getting it done. They were getting at it. They were doing the work that Jesus had put before them. And as we see this and we, we begin a new year ourselves, I want to celebrate some of our wins. Can we do that for just a minute? Um, I, I want to look at some of the areas where, where I think we can look back and say we were getting it right and when it comes to deeds, the two big, and I, I, I struggled over this, like I changed it about four times, which two? I just wanted to narrow it down to two. The two big wins that I think we had this year were our Feed Alberta program and our VBS, our Vacation Bible School. You guys, like seriously, you rocked it. You guys knocked it out of the park with all of those. Uh, when we had those p- packing parties for, for Feed Alberta, who remembers those? Who went to them? Yeah, a bunch of us did. Couldn't get y'all to sign up to come, but y'all showed up. Like, like, seriously, I had like this blank sheet and it's was like, nobody's going to come. It's going to be me and Nathan and Joe and that's, that's it. Uh, but you guys showed up, like tons of people. What could have taken three or four hours to put these meals together, 
took 40 minutes. It was impressive. You guys really showed up, but more than that, more important than just coming together to put those bag lunches together, those breakfasts and lunches for, for the kids out in Alberta, more important was, than that was that our church carried the load for making sure that happened. You guys took those meals week after week to those families. You were the hands and feet of Jesus, interacting with them, making connections with families in our community who need to hear the gospel while providing them for and providing for their needs. So good on y'all. You did that so well. You represented Christ so well. That was a win. And our VBS was a huge success as well. We were able to meaningfully interact with with kids in Alberta for a whole week sharing the good news of Jesus while getting catchy VBS songs stuck in our head. You know know they're still there, right? Like, look to the left. Do you see it? Look to the right. There it is. There it is. Jason's laughing. It's going to be stuck in your head the rest of the day. You're welcome, right? Um, But seriously, uh, this last year, we were living out Jesus's mission in Alberta, and those are just two of the examples. I, I wanted to talk about so many more, um, but, but it wasn't just the deeds of this church where they were winning, where they were getting it right. They had good doctrine too. So let's get back into the text so I can get you out of here on time. Jesus says that he knows how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. You see, Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that false teachers would come in from outside and, and or even arise within the church, and John had instructed them to test the spirits in his first letter. And what we're seeing here is that they had heeded this instruction. This church in Ephesus had followed these instructions. But the, the question I want you to consider today, what, what we need to think about as we're looking at this letter, is how did they get there? How did they effectively get to the point where Jesus says, you're getting this right? Because as a church, I want us to be right where the Ephesians were when it comes to our doctrine. And I think the core to this is knowing scripture, knowing the word of God. How do you know that false teaching is false? You've got to know the truth. You've got to know what is true And that's why we stress the importance of scripture reading for you as a church. That's why we stress the importance of being in your Bible on a regular basis. That's why we talk about F260. It's why I want each of you to get into that Bible reading plan one chapter a day. And listen, I, I get it. Life is busy. We've got a lot of things going on in the world. Like we're scheduling church and we're scheduling kids' activities and we're scheduling work and we're scheduling everything. This year in 2020, let me encourage you, schedule your time in the Bible as well. Take the time to get into the word. Be intentional about being in the word throughout your week. And there are a lot of ways that you can do this. There are great Bible apps out there for your phone, right? There's an app for that. Is, am I, is that an old thing now? Do people still even get that reference? There's an app for that. Um, there are great apps out there. YouVersion is a phenomenal Bible app. If you don't have it, let me encourage you. It's free. Download it. Download it. Any translation you want is basically there, and it's available for free. They also have reading functions in there where you can have it read to you. So you can get in the car, and you can let it read the Bible over you as you're driving to and from the grocery store, to and from work. Another app that I've been listening to a lot lately is called Dwell. Anybody heard of Dwell? Phenomenal uh, app. It um, it has about a half dozen different readers, um, and it lets you pick kind of music in the background that you want to play, and, and you can listen to the word read over you. It's a new way to kind of experience the word of God as you're driving or, or doing the chores or what have you. My favorite, by the way, is a guy named Gregory. He's got like this New Englander accent. 
Um, and I put a little bit of p- piano and cello in the background and just let it go. And I'm telling you, it's, it's incredible. Um, there's a small subscription fee with that one. Totally worth it, in my opinion. That's not the point. My point is that there are a lot of ways for us to get into the word of God throughout the week. And we need to be doing that. We need to be intentional about it. You've got to take the time to make that happen. So, so let me challenge you this year. I already challenged you a little bit earlier, but it's the same challenge. Five days a week. Try for five days a week. Five days, one chapter each day to just get into your Bible. Spend some time. My personal habit pattern, um, I do it in the evenings because that's when I get quiet. I'm not a morning person. I do not like to get out of bed in the morning. So I do my Bible study at night. Tam is shaking her, heads, her head. Um, I do my Bible study at night after the girls go to their bed, bedrooms. I, I sit down. I pray for like two seconds, like just a quick short prayer. Then I write a little bit about my day in my journal. Then I go to my Bible. I spend my time reading in my Bible. Then I spend time writing about what I read. And then I pray some more. And I usually pray whatever I just read in my Bible, right? So that's my personal devotion time. That's what I do. You don't have to be like me. You don't have to do it that way. But let me encourage you to do something like that. The nice thing about this F260 program is it allows you to miss a day, right? If you miss one or two days throughout the week, no big deal. You won't even be behind five days a week. Let me challenge you to do that. But returning to our text, as we're talking about the Ephesian church's wins, in addition to their works and their doctrine, I want you to see their dedication as well. In verse 3, Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And what we're seeing here is Jesus telling them how well they're doing at tackling the hard. This church was facing persecution, but they're doing it. They're following Jesus in a society that wasn't necessarily friendly to them. And for us today, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that that is the direction that our society is headed as well. We are living in the midst of a post-Christian culture that is going to start asking us to decide, Jesus or culture. They're going to ask you. So you've got to be ready for that. We need to be dedicated to our Savior. We need to endure with patience which means that we don't lash out when culture comes at us. We don't respond with anger, but with love. We, we love our enemies. We pray for our enemies. We seek their good. We seek opportunities to share the gospel with them. And it means that we need to bear up for Christ's name. We need to bear up for that, which, which means we recognize that every trial that comes at us because of Jesus will ultimately, one way or another, bring glory to Jesus. That's the challenge that we can take from this as we celebrate, as we see Jesus celebrating the Ephesian church's wins in this letter. But as we turn in from verse 3 over to verse 4, we can hear Jesus' tone change a bit as, as the letter continues on. And we, we encounter him giving this church a strong rebuke. Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, for all the good that was going on, for all the activity and the good things that, that these had earned that Jesus' praise, the Ephesian church, they hadn't figured out that activity doesn't equal affection. They had lost their love that they had at first. Now, now it's not exactly clear what that means. Um, does, does it mean that they lost their love for Christ? Um, their love for one another, their love for people in general? Is it a combination of all three? We're, we're not completely sure, but what is clear is that where once there was love, where once love existed, now it's gone. 
I personally think, as we're reading this, I personally think that this is a reference to their love for Christ, their love for God that has been lost. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, that the greatest commandment is that we love God. Our first love ought to be Christ. And what Jesus was saying here is that they had abandoned that love. The word abandoned there, aphiomy, um, it, it can mean abandoned, but it can also have kind of a more harsh tone. It can also mean to divorce. The, the sense is that they had completely walked away from their first fine flush of enthusiastic love. They had yielded to the temptation that's always present to Christians to put their emphasis on sound teaching, on, on good works, and in the process, they lost love, without which everything else is nothing. How, how you might ask, could, could this happen? How could a church that had earned Jesus' praise so strongly in verses 1 through 3 gotten to this point where they don't even love Christ, where they don't love God? I think the answer can be found when we consider their priorities and their motivations. One Bible teacher commented that at the core of the Ephesian church's problem is the reality that you can do all the right things and yet do them for inadequate or dishonorable reasons. You can even do the right things for some of the right reasons, but fail in the service of the Lord in terms of the best reasons. Perhaps the Ephesians had succeeded well in many areas, but the maintenance of that success had become more important than the motivation for service, specifically their love for Christ. Think about that statement there, because um, I think it leads us to consider what are our motivations? What are our priorities Think about that for, for just a minute because this concept is not just found here in Revelation. It is found throughout our Bibles when Christ reinstated Peter in John 21 verses 15 through 19. Um, that seems to be what was at the heart of what Jesus was getting at. You see, three times Jesus asked, do you love me, Peter? And three times Peter responded, you know that I love you. But there's a nuance there that sometimes we miss out in, in our English translations of the Bible because when Jesus asked that question, do you love me? The word he used was agapau. That, that word means to have affection for, to cherish, to take pleasure in. But when Peter replied, he replied with the word phileo. And, and that one means to consider someone a friend. Jesus is standing there and he's saying, do you love me? Do you really love me? And he's saying, yeah, Jesus, you're my friend. You're my friend. You see, when, when Jesus is asking this, this, this nuance matters because the motivations and priorities of friendship are different than those of love. Listen, many of you guys are my friends and I have motivations and priorities with regard to our friendship that makes me want to prioritize you, that makes my relationship with you want to grow. But none of you are my wife. None of you are Tama. And my motivations and my, my priorities when it comes to loving my wife are completely different. They're more determined. They're more genuine set of motivations and priorities. And it's the same thing with Christ. Jesus wants us to love him, to truly love him the way he loves us. He wants us to have that love at the core of everything we do. So it leads me to ask you again, what are our motivations and our priorities? When we serve the community as a church, are we doing it because we want the Point Church to be well-regarded? Are we doing it because we want our church to grow numerically? Or are we doing it because we love Jesus? That needs to be something we're thinking about.
on a personal level, when, when you dedicate time to reading your Bible? Or, or are you doing it because you want to feel more spiritual? Or, or, or because you want to look more religious? Are you doing it because you want to take that, you know, the Bible spread out on the table, coffee cup in the background, get that perfect picture, throw it out on Instagram or Facebook to look good to all those religious people out there? Or are you doing it because you want to know and love Jesus more? Our motivations and our priorities matter. So what are they? What are our motivations? What are our priorities? As a church, we have a leadership team, and our leadership team has a set of core values. They speak to those priorities. And our goal is that they become part of the DNA of the church. I'm going to have them put these up on the screen. We're going to go through these. These are our core values. Jesus, the gospel, and missional living. Everything starts with our love for Jesus. All other values flow out of those. It drives our dedication to the gospel. It drives a lifestyle that lives on mission for Jesus, making disciples. Authentic authentic unity speaks to the priority we place on finding unity with our common love for Christ. And it overcomes all the difficult. We work where it's hard. We work and we endure and we bear with one another for the sake of the gospel. Families are important to God, so they ought to be important to us. This includes the greater family of the church body. It it speaks to how we love one another. So so you don't have to be married with kids to be part of a family because you're part of this family. Discipleship is the core value that, that puts feet to living out the Great Commission. We're not about just gathering here on Sunday to get a good pep talk. Trust me, you can get better pep talks than me, right? Like just go, go online. There's great pep talks online. If that's what you're looking for, that's not what we're about. We are about growing disciples who grow disciples. We're about making disciples who go out and live the mission of proclaiming the gospel. So we want you to grow as a disciple of Jesus. Generosity speaks to the fact that that we want to be known for our generosity. We want to be known as a church who loves God and loves people more than we love stuff. So we want to be abundantly generous. You guys did that right here last Sunday. You guys, like seriously, knocked it out of the park last Sunday. Let's keep that spirit. Let's keep that at the center. Finally, excellence in all we do. That sounds like we just want to be really good. We want to be really professional, right? But that's not what we're talking about here because it's not that we're perfectionists. It's not that we want to look good. It's that we want to create an environment where people are able to worship Jesus without interruption. We want to bring Jesus glory and honor. So those are are our core values right there. That's what is at our heart. And, and, and they're grounded in a motivation that is a love for Jesus, a love for God. That, that's our heart. Uh, we want those to be front and center. When we're thinking about things, when we're, when we're going forward, when we're making decisions, every time we have a leadership meeting team where, where we come together as your church leadership, we go over these values. They're that important to us. That's... So, so that's, that's what we're shooting for. Um, and, and with the church in Ephesus, they, they, they lost their love. And that's not where we want to be. And, and as we look at the remainder of today's text, we can see um, the warning to recover what you've lost. 
recover what you've lost. Take a look, verse 5. Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And I want you to notice that the first thing Jesus does after the rebuke of verse 4 is call them back to himself. And in this call, there are three steps that we can kind of walk away with. First, they should remember where they started. You see, it's possible to slip away gradually without ever realizing it's happening. Um, it's kind of like gaining weight in the holidays, right? Anybody? Um, just me? Just I'm, I'm the only one. Okay, no worries. No worries. Um, it all starts because like we've got two months of just snacks and food, right? And it starts like October 31st. The kids come home with this massive bag of candy, right? And if you're a good parent, you immediately take out the dad tax, right? Dad tax? No, just... just I'm the only one? Yeah, okay. So anyway, so one piece at a time. You start having, you know, a piece of candy here, a piece of candy there. Then we're up to Thanksgiving, and in Thanksgiving we get the turkey and the stuffing and the mashed potatoes. We top all of that off with pie, because who doesn't love pie, right? And as soon as Thanksgiving's over, it's Christmas season. And in Christmas season, we got to have our cookies and our fudge. Oh, my, my mom sends us this fudge. It's like chocolate with peanut butter on it. Anyway, um, so one bite at a time. We're taking these snacks. We're enjoying this stuff. And next thing you know, it's Christmas, Christmas is over, it's New Year's, and you go into the bathroom and you step on the scale, and it's like five or ten pounds have just magically appeared where they weren't before, right? Like it's all gradual, it's a, it's a slow thing, and it's the same thing here. And the best solution, at least for me, that I've found is to remember where I started. Remember where you started. So I, I think back, it's like, okay, I was a hundred and... I'm not saying the rest of my weight, but I was there and I want to be there again. So I'm going to remember where I started. And, and in the Greek here, as we look at our text, the, the command is in the present tense and the meaning is, it means something to the effect of um, keep on remembering, hold it in your memory. They had enjoyed a close walk with God at one point. So he's telling them, let your minds dwell on where you were. Remember that. That's the first step. The second is repentance. And it's just one word. He says, repent. And that word repent indicates that a person is changing the way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. As Christians, we, we can't play with sin. We can't have it like it's this little pet that we go and we, we put it in a closet for a little while and it's there and, and every now and then we bring it out to play with it. No, we need to put it to death. We saw that back in Colossians chapter 3. Finally, the third step that Jesus gives us is to return to what we were doing, to do the works that you did at first. And, and if you're like me, you read that and you're like, wait a minute, didn't we just say that, that activity doesn't equal affection? So, so how is Jesus telling us right here to return to activity? Right? What, what's going on with that? The answer to that question is found in, at the core of their motivations and their priorities because what we're seeing here is, is Jesus telling them something to the effect of do the works you did at first when you were first driven by your first love. He's saying, go back to that. The command is to remember to work, to toil, to endure because you love Jesus and for no other reason. And at the same time that this command is given, there is a warning. You might even consider it a threat. And as a healthy and successful church today, which we are, I think we need to take heed of this warning. We need to take this warning to heart. 
In the second half of verse 5, Jesus says, if not, if, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And when I say that we need to take this warning to heart, it's because of the severity of what Jesus is saying right here. You see, from all outward observances, the Ephesian church was a healthy and thriving church. They seemed to be a successful church. They seemed to be doing the right things, saying the right things, but their motivations were wrong. They weren't doing it because they loved Christ. And what Jesus is saying is that if they don't repent, he'll come in and take away their lampstand. In the symbology of this letter, Jesus is saying, I will shut your church down. You guys won't even exist anymore. Think about that. That is a severe warning. And that's important to remember because the truth is this, for any church in any era, whether it's the Ephesian church in 95 AD or our church here in Alberta in 2020, you you can be busy, you can have good numbers, you can do lots of good works, but none of that matters if your motivations are wrong. None of that matters if you're doing it for yourself. One scholar noted that this warning should give us significant pause. Neither history nor appropriate activity is sufficient to demand the continued blessings of God. Rather, the only motivation must be love for Christ. So as we go forward, it's important that we continuously gauge our heart, continuously gauge our motivations. We want to continuously check to ensure that we keep our love for Christ at the center of everything that we do. And as we return to the text, we we come to verses 6 and 7 where we hear Jesus transition to a word of praise in verse 6 followed by an admonition in verse 7. Jesus says in verse 6, Yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now we don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans. We don't know um, much. In fact, there's only really two places where, where they're even talked about in our Bibles. We've got it here and in verse 15, which we'll see next week. Beyond that, even the early church fathers weren't really sure what was going on with them. There is some speculation from the context clues that they were some sort of heretical group that appeared to advocate participation in in pagan religion or immoral behavior. But what's more instructive for us today, though, is, is to observe what Jesus says and what he doesn't say. You see, Jesus doesn't say that he hates the Nicolaitans. And the Bible here, he doesn't even say that the Ephesian church hates the Nicolaitans. Rather, he says that they both hate their works. And that in itself is a good reminder for us in 2020. Okay, because we are surrounded by false teaching. If you don't think that our society, our culture is trying to evangelize you, then you're you're living under a rock. Because we are living in the midst of false teaching And we need to apply the example of Christ himself. Because the example of Christ himself in this text is that while we we can not like false teachers, atheists, enemies of Christ, while these people's heresies and practices must be rejected, they can even be hated, the person themselves remains a potential Christian. The person themselves remains a candidate for salvation. They remain an image bearer of Christ. And I I just kind of misspoke there, and I want to make this perfectly clear. You can hate what they believe. You can't hate them, okay? You love them because Christ loves them. Jesus says he hates the work of the Nicolaitans, not the Nicolaitans. They are potential people for salvation. 
and we need to see them the same way. We must continuously remember this. So, so we recover what we've lost, our, our first love, and we let that love be the motivation behind our response to false teaching, to attacks from the enemy of Christ. And as we come to the final verse of this letter, and I work to get you out of the door, we come to an admonition. Jesus says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, as we'll see as we read through these letters over the next seven weeks, we see this admonition in each of the seven letters at the end. It's a plea to hear the message of Christ, to let it sink in. Jesus used the same phrase within his own earthly ministry. Um, It's a call to give special attention to what we've heard or what's been written in front of us. But it also reminds us that while this letter was addressed to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, it's also addressed to all of us. You see, the expression there is, is a personal challenge. Jesus is speaking to the churches, and that word is intentionally plural. That It's for all of us. The plural churches shows us that the message is not only for the Ephesian Christians, it's for all of us in every age. Anyone who has an ear to hear. And as we consider this whole passage, I hope that you've seen that there is a lot in this for us. There's a lot that we can apply. There are important lessons that we can learn from the Ephesian church. And the most significant lesson, the most important lesson is that of keeping our love for Christ front and center. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And we need to put ourselves into Peter's shoes. We're standing there. And Jesus is saying, Peter, he's saying, Josh, do you love me? What's your answer? How do you respond to that? Because that's the central point of this short letter to the church in Ephesus. And this letter, it comes to a close with a promise. To the one who conquers... And here that's not referring to someone who, who conquers some earthly foe here on earth, but what it's talking about is the ones who've conquered in, in the spiritual realm. It's, it's talking about those who have lived out what John wrote in his first letter in chapter 5, verse 4, where he says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's who the conquerors are. They're those who who hold fast to Christ, who cling to Christ, who continue in the midst of persecution, in the midst of the hard, to follow Jesus. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Last week, as I introduced Revelation to you, I told you that Revelation serves as a bookend to the whole of Scripture, with Genesis as its counterpart. Right, so Genesis begins Scripture, Revelation ends Scripture, and we're seeing a little bit of that this week right here in this verse. You see, we first saw the tree of life in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us that if you eat of the tree of life, you would live forever. After man sinned, God banished Adam and Eve out of Eden, and he sends an angel to guard the tree of life. But here we see it given to Jesus' faithful followers to eat. You see, what we're seeing here is is the promise that, that those who overcome, those who are steadfast in their faith, will be given eternal life with God. That's a great promise. 
That's the gospel right there. That, that if we continue to follow Jesus, if we are steadfast in our faith, and we won't always be perfect in that, and that's okay, right? But if we're constantly striving to be more and more like Jesus, where we keep our love for Christ at the center of all we do, we get to spend eternity reconciled with God. That's a promise. That's something we can look forward to. But the promise comes to those who read the letter and do what it says. Back in 1942, when the Navy broke the Japanese code, they had options. We don't really think about it that way, but but they had options. They could have just withdrawn their forces. They could have pulled the fleet back sent them back towards Pearl Harbor where they'd be safe. They could have just abandoned that little tiny island. It is a small island in the middle of a vast ocean and just let the Japanese have it. But if they had, the results of the entire war could have been very, very different. Today, as as we read this letter to the Ephesian church, we're in the same situation We can read it and walk away thinking, hey, that wasn't written for me. That's not my letter. That was a church 2,000 years ago. That doesn't apply to me. We can think that. Or we can recognize that this letter is for us too. And if we do what it says, we can learn to follow Christ better because of it. Those are our choices today. As we're reading this church's letter, let's be people who recognize there's stuff for us in here and apply it to our lives, okay? Let's pray.